been a joy to worship with the church thus far and looking forward to our time now as we uh, gather in the scriptures. I want to invite you to take your Bible and uh, make your way to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 3 uh, and verse 20 through 21 is going to be our text for this morning. And uh, we're finishing out this chapter and we're closing up the first half of the book of Ephesians. We've been preaching through this uh, great letter that Paul wrote. Uh, expositionally, coming through it verse by verse, and how rich it's been thus far, and uh, we're just halfway through. I'm looking forward to the second half of the book as well. But I believe what we see here in this text is a great uh, transition point that Paul brings to our attention, and I've titled the message, To Him Be Glory in the Church, taken right out of the text here in our, our text before us in verse 21. Uh, but we're going to begin reading here in Ephesians verse 20, and look at verse 21, and we'll close there and uh, see what the Lord has for us in this text. Notice that Paul writing, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And like Paul, I look at that text and I say the same thing that he closed with, amen to this truth, amen to what he is saying here. We see a lot that we can unpack here in in the realm of God's glory, in the realm of what Paul has been praying here. But just to start us out, let us think for a moment, have we ever had a request, whether in prayer or to someone else, that maybe seemed too big to be fulfilled, too hard to actually see it come to pass. Sometimes we tend to rationalize what we ask before we ask it, and this can be a good thing, but also it could be a hindering thing. It could be a good thing if we realize what we're asking for is really just unfitting and uh, not right to ask for. Uh, David, at his age, he has no concept yet of what he can and cannot have, and He's been thinking a lot about Christmas and his birthday that's coming up. And so with no hesitation, he asks us for one thing, and he's just absolutely confident that he can ask this. He says, Dad, I want a real four-wheeler, a real-size four-wheeler. And I thought, well, son, that's a nice request, but that's not real tangible. That's not a reality that's going to come to pass for a four-year-old. He wouldn't know how to operate one, nor would it be safe. But that request just came with innocence. You know, he sees a four-wheeler, and he thinks it's an awesome thing, and so he asks mom and dad for a four-wheeler. That's a child's mind for you. But then there are requests that should be made, even though they may seem near impossible. There are things that we should ask for. Should we pray for the salvation of the most vile of sinners? Absolutely, we should. Should we pray for healing from some of the deadliest diseases? Absolutely. We should. Should we pray for restoration of the most broken people? Absolutely. Should we pray for God's people to be used to the fullest? Absolutely we should. Some of those things we might look at on the first glance and think, man, I don't know if that's really going to happen or it could happen, but it can in God's power. And this short text we're looking at is in direct connection to the prayer that Paul offers on behalf of the Ephesians. Now, Last week, we looked at this prayer in depth. We looked at verse 14 through verse 19, and that is a prayer that Paul prays on behalf of the Ephesians. 
Now, some hold that these two verses are part of that prayer, which is possible, but the content of what Paul's specific request is, it ends with verse 19, and now Paul gives an expression in verse 20 and verse 21, an expression of great confidence in God, but also praise and adoration unto God. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is one that seems somewhat hard to fathom being answered. If you look at it and what he's requesting. Verse 14 through 19, notice what he prayed, just in summary. He prayed that the church would be strengthened with power through the Spirit to the end that they would be rooted and grounded in love. So we think, well, that's, that seems plausible, right? But he continues on. With the Spirit's power, with Christ taking up residence in their hearts, Notice that Paul wants them to comprehend and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I just pause and ponder on that, and I think, man, that is a deep and wide prayer that he's offering. He wants them to know the unknowable, to comprehend the incomprehensible. And to top it off, notice that the the full climax of what he's praying here, he prays that they will be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, to be filled with God's fullness, it is to have the highest degree of Christian experience and living. It is for God to fill them with His presence and power so that He is making them in what they ought to be in Christ in their Christian life. Paul is praying the greatest prayer that could be prayed for the Christian that they become and are all that God wants them to be with His filling. Do we pray that way for our own fellow believers or even ourselves? Do we pray that God would cultivate our Christian brothers and sisters to the fullest? That He cultivate us to the fullest? Do we believe that the Lord can do this for His people? This is where we see Paul's confidence in the prayer that he's offering. And this is where his closing words strike us. Paul points out to us the power of God to answer prayer, to work in His people, and to glorify Himself through His people as that prayer is answered. It comes full circle of what God does. Now, notice in our notes here this morning, you'll see there's two headings we're looking at. And again, I warn you, don't get excited for two points instead of three. That's, that's always a warning, okay? Okay. It's kind of a Baptist thing just to have three points and be done, but sometimes you get two points, but they're just as long. So just just bear with me. Uh, There's two overarching things here I want you to see. I want you to see, number one, God's infinite ability for His people. God's infinite ability for His people. And and notice notice there's there's three sub-points I want to bring out of this, all in verse 20. And well, the first thing that we see is the appeal to God's power from Paul. He is appealing to the very power of Almighty God on behalf of this people that in, in Ephesus. Now, notice in verse 20, he starts out, he says, Now to him who is able. Let's pause there for a moment. To him who is able. Who is the him he's referencing? Well, it is God. 
specifically the Father in reference of prayer, right? Because he's praying to the Father. Paul is demonstrating the doctrinal truth that he has been teaching throughout this passage up to this point in this letter. This is the truth that in Christ... Every believer, Jew and Gentile, has direct access to Almighty God. Christian, we fail to realize what a privilege that really is to us. That you, as a believer, have direct access to God, the Father. Paul just told them in verse 12, he says that they have boldness, boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. And with that, he says in verse 14, he demonstrates this. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. So you understand that Paul in his prayer here, he's praying on behalf of the Ephesians for a purpose so that they would grow and be who they ought to be in Christ, having the fullness of God dwelling and working in them. Now notice that Paul does not consider himself as the power to grow the Ephesians and make them what they ought to be. And this is a point I think it needs to be grasped in this day and time. No matter how gifted a man may be in the gospel ministry, it is not his power to make Christians what they ought to be. Nor is it yours, Christian. Now, we look at Christians that we know and love and we wish that uh, we, we, we pray for them and wish that they would be faithful and be cultivated and grow. But it's not in our power to do that, and it's not in Paul's power to do that. But whose power does, who does have the power to do that? God does, right? And, and so Paul is appealing to the Father on behalf of the Ephesians in Ephesus. Now notice what Paul says about the Father, and I love this. Just, just simplifying and looking at this, he says, now to him... Who is, and that one little word, what's it say? Him who is what? Able. To him who is able. How wonderful that little statement is. God is able. You see, God is able to perform and do whatever it is that his children come to him with. Now, countless times in our home, my children will come to me from the other room and they're Asking me for help to do something specific. Usually, in David's case, it's a toy that he's broken because he doesn't know how to be gentle with anything. He breaks things and cries, Dad, can you fix this? And so I do my best to fix it. Jubilee usually comes in and says, Dad, can you help me with this? Maybe it's reaching something high that she can't reach. But whatever the request is, those children come into the room and they come to Dad and they are asking Dad to do something they cannot do because they know that Dad can do it. Surely Dad has the capability of doing this. And this is the point Paul makes here. He is coming to the Almighty Father with his request on behalf of the Ephesians because only God can do what Paul can't do. Now, this brings us to the reality of what is the point of praying at all? What is the entire point of praying? It is an appeal to the omnipotent God to do what we cannot do. When you pray, you are acknowledging you can't do what you're requesting. You can't do it in your power. But we appeal to someone who can do what we cannot. The psalmist said in Psalm 121, 1 and 2, 
I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from where comes my where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now I'll be the first to admit in all of my Christian life I need help. And so do you. And daily my prayer is to the Father to help me be the Christian today that I ought to be. We need help spiritually. We need help physically. We need help in so many ways. And this is why we look to and pray to the Lord, because He's the one who can help. If the one who made heaven and earth cannot help, friend, there's no help at all for any of us. But He can help. Now, when we pray and bring requests to Him, we are acknowledging that we cannot fulfill what we are requesting in our own power. We pray because we're powerless. We pray because God is powerful. And notice that that Paul says to the Philippians, in Philippians 4 and verse 6, he tells them, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What a verse that is for us in our day and time. Now, sometimes our natural tendency is to hold on to our request because we either think we can handle this on our own. Maybe we think God's not interested in our request. Maybe we think that what we're thinking is bigger than what God is really willing to do. But here's what we need to understand. Is that we as His children can come before the Father requesting what is in our hearts, trusting Him with His will to do whatever He sees needs to be done. And he will do whatever it is that he promises to do. John Calvin rightly said this, whatever God can do, he unquestionably will do if he has promised to do it. So this is Paul's appeal to the power of God. But notice with me, letter B, we see the astonishment in God's power. This is an astonishment both for him and for me and for you. I'm astonished at what Paul says here. Now, this, this verse breaks down so wonderfully. It will continue in verse 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Now, just think about what he's saying here. We, we can break this down in different ways and see what's happening. Notice he, he says God is able. He's able to do what we ask, right? He's able to do what we ask. This is what Paul just ushered. This, and this statement only increases uh, in the knowledge of God's ability as Paul continues. Notice, not only is God able to do what we ask, He's also able to do more than we ask. More than what we ask. Have you ever asked for something and received more than what you asked for? It's a blessing when that happens. Now, this may be a silly illustration, but the first time I ever went to... Five Guys Burgers and Fries. Anybody been there? That's my favorite burger place. If you want to make me happy, take me to eat there someday. And the first time I ever went there, I saw they had their sizes, you know. They got the little cup of their fries, and they have Cajun fries. Those are awesome, okay? And I thought, okay, that would be plenty. That would be plenty enough fries, right? So they put your meal in a paper bag. They put your burger in there. They put your cup of fries But then they also take a huge scoop and they just fill that bag with fries. You don't ask for it, they just do it. And I get to the table and sit down and I'm thinking, this is like an extra large fry, I only asked for a small. But the size of the cup that was in there is the one I asked for, right? I told you that was a silly illustration. But here's the point. 
is that God often blesses us with far more than what we actually ask for. Why does he do that? Because he's good and he's God. All of our blessings flow from him. Matthew 7, 11, if you then, Jesus said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is a privilege of God's people. Notice how you break this down even further. Not only is God able to do more than what you ask, but notice he's able to do more than what you request or think. Paul says here, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Now that, that phrase, far more abundantly, it's, it's one Greek word. It's a word that references quite beyond measure. It's the highest form of comparison imaginable. So, so Paul's using a word here that is the highest expression Paul could render of the infinitude of God's power and ability. There is no limit to the capability of God's power. And notice that Paul adds here, not only does God do above what we could ask, because we ask many things, but we also think many things, and we don't always ask what we're thinking. He says he can do and does far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. You know, Scripture is saturated with examples of God doing things that are beyond what our mind can really fathom. For example, creating the universe out of nothing. God did that. Flooding the entire world with water in judgment. God did that. Splitting the Red Sea for His people to walk on dry ground and escape Egyptian bondage. God did that. Bringing fire from heaven when Elijah called unto him in that battle with the prophets of Baal. God did that. Giving Abraham and Sarah a child when it was humanly impossible for them to have a child. God did that. Genesis 18, 14, listen to what is said here. The Lord says to Abraham and Sarah, he says, is any, when he's telling them about Sarah's going to have a child, is anything too hard for the Lord? You remember Sarah's first reaction when she, when they, when she heard from the Lord that she's going to have a child next year? What'd she do? She laughed at that idea. She laughed because she's beyond childbearing years, right? It's humanly impossible. But here's what the Lord says. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Friend, that's really the question for all of us. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The answer uh, to this question is absolutely no. And here's what we must understand. There is nothing outside of God's capability and power so long as it doesn't conflict with His own character and nature. There is no sinner that God cannot save, so vile that He cannot save them. There is no Christian He cannot sanctify. There is no enemy He cannot defeat. There is no bondage He cannot break. There is no brokenness He cannot fix. There is no illness He cannot heal. Heal. There is nothing we could name that God cannot do so long as it doesn't conflict with His nature and His will. As Moses said in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 
And here's the reality is that God can do more in response to our prayer than he can in us with hundreds of years of planning and prodding and trying to do something. Now, here's the reality. If God has the infinite ability, Paul describes, why do we pray so timidly? Why do we pray so smallly? That's not a word. In a small manner. (laughs) In a small manner. Perhaps we fail to realize how big and mighty our God is, that he's greater than us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Our greatest trouble in the Christian life is our failure to realize that God is not man. You know what man naturally does? He brings God down to his own level, and God doesn't belong there. He does not belong on the level of man, friend. That's our natural tendency, even outside of prayer, in every other area, theology, whatever you want to name, we tend to humanize God. Nearly 500 years ago, Martin Luther said to Erasmus, you probably remember the debate between them. He was, Erasmus was a, a humanist and Greek scholar of his time. He resisted joining the, the Reformation movement. But Luther said to him, your God is too small. And that's true. God's too small in the eyes of many under Christian circles. And what I learned from Paul here is that we need to have a perspective of Paul that God is bigger and greater than anything that we could ask or think. He sovereignly governs all things, which means he has power over all things. So we need to come to him with those small requests and those big requests. I love these words of John Newton. He says, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For His grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. God's ability is astonishing. Notice with me letter C. I want you to see the application of God's power because this is where it ties in to what Paul is actually praying for the Ephesians. The application. Where is God's power applied? Where is His power at work? Notice what he says here in verse 20. He says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly Then all that we ask or think, but notice this last statement, according to the power at work, where? Within us. This is what connects Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. Remember what Paul is praying about. He's praying for them to be filled with all the fullness of God so that they may know and experience the highest expression of what it is to be a Christian. Some may view the prayer of Paul like something that's not likely or it's impossible. Have we ever looked at a professing Christian and thought they may never be the Christian they ought to be? Paul didn't think that way. He didn't think that way. Though the Ephesians were in the midst of a very dark and demonic culture, Paul is praying for them to come to a place in which they would be the greatest Christian they ought to be in that culture. Paul believed God was able to work powerfully in them even beyond what Paul could ask or think. He wants the Ephesians to understand the infinite power of God in his prayer is the power that is at work in them. You understand that the power of prayer is not in us in the sense that it's what we're saying. The power of prayer is in the person who answers prayer. It's in the person who dwells within us. 
We read earlier in, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, where Paul had prayed for them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. You understand that the power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted Him over all things is the same power at work in you. As a believer. What's this mean? Every Christian is a walking testimony of God's omnipotence. You're a testimony of God raising the dead. Raising the dead. Because we were spiritually dead. You see, Paul believed God was working in His people beyond what even they recognized. He believed that God would answer this prayer in verse 14 through 19. And we see Paul's confidence in God working in His people in other passages to this same end. And I put them in here to reference and quote for you. They're in your notes, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And I want you to, I want you to see this continual thing that's said in each of these passages. It's that God is able. God is able. He is able. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to who? You, the church. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What's the end of that prayer? God is able to work in them to an extent, right? To a degree in which they would abound in every good work. He wrote to the Romans in Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able, there it is again, to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. What's the goal there? It's about God working in his people. Jude would write the same thing in Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence of his glory with great joy. So you understand that this reveals Paul's confidence in his prayer for the Ephesians, he knows that God's power works in and through his own people. And so Paul understood this power of God for himself, that it worked in his own life. Earlier in verse 7, when he speaks of his own calling into the gospel ministry, he says it was according to the working of his power. Colossians 1.29, Paul says of himself, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And friend, when it even comes to our prayer life, what is it that makes our prayer effectual? It is his power in us. Because the Spirit even aids in that. Romans 8.26, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Friend, do you see how this comes full circle of God working in His people? From beginning to end, it is His power that works in us. And so understand that because of this, God is able to do extraordinary things through ordinary people according to His power. Many of us have probably heard of the missionary William Carey. In the late 18th century, William Carey preached a sermon that would ultimately be very influential, that challenged his hearers. And in that sermon, he said to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God. 
Carey's challenge was aimed at rousing the church of his day from its complacency, specifically in foreign missions. As he saw it, the fact that Christians were not attempting great things for God indicated that they were not expecting him to do great things in and through them. They well have known this verse, that God is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think in us, but they were obviously not expecting that he actually would, as evident by their lack of doing anything. Their lack of action showed that they believed they were living in a day of small things. And this is why Carrie challenged them to think bigger and expect more from God. He knew that if they did expect more from God, maybe they might attempt more for God. And I can't help but think that we see some of that similarity in our own day and age. The church of today is too complacent. We're too timid because the powers of darkness around us have been louder, more obnoxious, caused so many Christians to sit back in fear. But may I remind us of who we are in Christ and who is on His throne. You understand that that you and I, God is working in us. We must come back to believing and behaving in accordance with the almighty nature of God. For we are His people in His kingdom, given a commission from the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The gates of hell do not prevail against the Lord's church and His people. Be reminded that that is a church, that is a, that is a scripture about offense, not defense. We charge darkness. We don't just sit back and cower and think, oh, let's just hold out to the end. No, we march forward. We march forward because of God's power in us. So because God's sovereign power, it is more than all we can ask or think through His people, this brings us to the central purpose of all of this the purpose of Paul's prayer, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice with me number two this morning. Not only have we seen God's infinite ability for His people, but here's what I want you to see, and this is the central point, really, of everything he said in Ephesians thus far. We see God's infinite glory through His people. His infinite glory through His people. In verse number 21. Notice, in connection with this sentence, Paul says, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Three quick things. I want you to see, firstly, the principle of God's glory. The principle of God's glory. Paul says, Unto Him be glory. And we know that the Him is God. It's the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is to Him that glory belongs and is manifested. But what exactly is meant by glory to the Lord? The word glory is used in a variety of ways throughout the Old and New Testaments. There's different applications in which it's used and applied. But in this text, understand, we see some specific identification for it. I give you a couple of Greek dictionary references here. One speaks of of glory, saying to speak of something as being unusually fine and deserving of honor. Another speaks of glory as the condition of being bright or shining, with specific reference to the glory, majesty, and sublimity of God in general. So when we think of glory, 
Glory references both the splendor of God's nature and works and the praise that is due to Him for those works and His nature. So when we speak of, when we speak of the glory of God, we're talking about the splendor and majesty of the very essence of who God is and what He does. When we speak of glory to God, we're referencing the praise and honor that He's worthy of because of His glorious nature. So so both aspects here are involved. Both aspects are involved in what Paul is saying. Glory resides in God alone, and all glory is due to God alone. This is the principle. This is a foundation of Christianity. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. One of the five solas of the Reformation. Now, many in our world do not hold to that truth that glory belongs to God alone. Even some Christian circles will not fully embrace that teaching. But when when we study the Scriptures, what do we find? There is no room for anything other than glory to God alone. There's no room for glory to anyone else. Not to you, not to me, but only God. And so Paul says it plain as day in our text right here where glory belongs. Why is he so confident of this truth? Well, couple things here. Paul knows the purpose for which God has done all things. At the end of Paul's long discourse in Romans of salvation, all the way up to verse chapter 11 at the end, he says a similar doxology here. Romans 11.36, For from him, and through him, and to him, are some things. No. Are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. What what does this mean? It means that everything flows unto the glory of God. We are created for His glory. We are redeemed in Christ for His glory. We are converted for His glory. We are sanctified for His glory. We worship for His glory. We serve for His glory. And friend, in the end, we will be glorified in eternity for His glory. It's all about the glory of God. And if we miss this principle, we miss the entire theme of your Bible. Herman Bavnik, the theologian of many years ago, rightly said, God does not exist for us, but we exist for Him. The world has that backward. They think God exists for us. But it's the opposite. We exist for Him. Everything that happens to us, in us, and through us as Christians is from Him, through Him, and to Him. This is all to manifest the splendor and majesty of God's inherent glory and praise for it. But Paul also knew his Old Testament. He knew how important glory glory was to God. The prophet Isaiah, the Lord says through him, Isaiah 42, 8, listen to this. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carve you understand that God is jealous over His glory and He has a right to be jealous over His glory. Because there's not anybody else that compares to Him. Not anybody else that does what He does or has done what He has done. He says again through Isaiah, Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 
So when we consider all that Paul has brought to our attention throughout the book of Ephesians, why has God done all He has done in Christ? It is for His glory. Why has He brought Jew and Gentile into one people for His glory? Why has He given them power by His own presence in them? It is for His glory. There is no other person to which glory belongs. And this is the principle that we must understand in what Paul communicates to us. So we see the principle that glory is to him alone. This is the doxology Paul is giving us. But notice, notice letter B. This is, it just gets richer with this. Notice the place of God's glory. Or the means by which he, is, he, he, he brings glory to himself. Notice that he says in verse 21, To him be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus. Now, some translations may render that by Christ Jesus, which communicates the same message. The place of glory is the same. There is no glory in the church without Christ. Without Christ, we're just a bunch of people gathering here. Christ is what makes the difference in everything. He's the foundation. He's the centerpiece. There is no church. There's no redeemed people of God without Christ. So the pinnacle of God's glory is Christ and His redemptive work for the church on the cross. It's through Him that this glory comes and is manifested. God's glory can only be manifested in the saints because it's first manifested in the Son. And notice that only because of Christ and in Christ is there such an entity called the church through which God's glory is manifested in praise. When Paul speaks of the church here in this passage, he has in mind the whole of God's redeemed people. Now, the majority of usages of the word church in the New Testament refer to specific local assemblies. That's what you'll find. You have churches in Ephesus, church in Philippi, the church uh, in Corinth. But here, Paul is using a broader usage that includes all believers. The Greek term here, is referenced as the global community of Christians. While we know that all Christians in this world, they can't gather into one visible single place, locality, but they still are one people together that exist for the same purpose, the glory of God. There will be one visible body in heaven someday, And Paul has in mind the fact that all believers, no matter where they are in this world, they exist for the glory of God. Hebrews 12, verse 22 through 23 shows us a little glimpse of this. But you, talking to these saints, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Notice the assembly is the same word for church here. And this assembly in view includes all those who are enrolled in heaven. So this is the one people of God, the heavenly church or assembly of the saints. This has been the central thrust of Paul's teaching thus far, that all Jews and Gentiles... They are one people in Christ. One people. And this one people of God is manifested on this world through local visible assemblies. 
congregation that worship and serve the Lord together in the power of the indwelling Spirit. So what do we learn from this? If God is to be glorified, if the church exists to glorify God, it includes all saints no matter where they are, guess what that means for Lee Creek Baptist Church? It means that you and I gather here today for one purpose, and it is the glory of God. And as I was thinking and meditating on this, oh, my prayer is this, is that Lee Creek Baptist Church is a hub through which the glory of God flows into this world. The glory of God permeates this church and extends through this church as we worship Him, as we serve Him, as we're obedient to Him. Now notice what Paul's focus here is for the church. It is the glory of God in it. And though God's people, understand, through God's people, the glory of God is manifested and praised. This points us to the central point of Paul's prayer, that the power through the Spirit so works in them to this end. The glory of God. Because what is the only way in which the glory of God can be manifested and praised in the church? Guess what? It's through His own power. This doxology is grounded in the power of God at work in the people of God and what He's done for them. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter says this to those Christians, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession. To what end? What's this next statement? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why has God chosen us and redeemed us and brought us from darkness to light? It is for this reason that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That is why we're here to manifest the glory of Christ, who He is, what He's done, what He continues to do. We exist for this purpose, Christian. This is why we worship, why we serve. It is the glory of God, and we're to take that home with us. Even the smallest things we do in life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31 to those Christians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what purpose? The glory of God. I mean, I, I can't think of anything more small and trivial than just eating and drinking. That's, that's normal things we have to do to live, right? Paul says, do even those to the very glory of God. So you understand that, that the glory of God is not limited just to this place in which we gather. It goes with you as you live your Christian life in this world. You manifest the glory of God in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, in the workplace. Wherever you are, you are to be a beacon for the glory of Almighty God. Because He's changed you for that purpose. He's regenerated you. He has given you new life for this purpose. So God's glory in the church, it rests in who we are and what we do all by His power alone. Can you see this connection of Paul's prayer into what he closes here? I hope that you're seeing this bigger picture of what he's doing. 
And as God answers the prayer of Paul for the Ephesians, the glory of God will be exemplified in the local church. And it's my prayer that His glory would be exemplified in our own church here. Lastly this morning, notice the permanence of God's glory. The permanence of God's glory. We notice in Paul's closing here this doxology in prayer. Verse 21, at the end of this verse, what does he say? Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What is a generation? It's a specific period of time in which an era of humanity lives, right? We all live on our own generation. And what do we know about generations? What happens to generations? They die. Our generation will die. Your generation will die. The generation of the apostles, dead and gone. Generation of the reformers, passed away. Generation of my great-grandparents, no longer lives. But here's what Paul's saying here. In every generation, from beginning to the end, God's glory will be manifested and praised in His people. How can this be? Because God has His elect, His chosen people in every generation that lives in this world. And what does He do with His people? He calls them by His gospel. He converts them, changes them, cultivates them, all for the sake of His own glory. You see, my life and my generation is to be lived to the glory of God, and so is yours. I don't know how long I'm going to get to live. That's not up to me. But I do know this, that when I die, God's glory doesn't die with me. It goes beyond. It doesn't die with us. It continues beyond me, beyond you, to every generation that is ever born, all the way up to the final day. And notice that Paul puts this eternal stamp upon the glory of God. He says that his glory continues in the church forever and ever. Amen. You see, God's glory in Christ and the church extend beyond the last generation into eternity. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.17, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jude wrote, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. You notice how they say amen after each of those things? They're affirming it. And so what Paul says in this doxology is the climax of all that he has said in Ephesians to this point. This is the transition point. Do you remember how he opened the letter in chapter 1, verse 3 through 14? How could you forget that passage? Longest sentence in the Bible but the most glorious doxology of theology that you can read. Now Paul concludes his great doctrinal discourse that came through chapters 1 through 3 with this doxology. And there's a reason for this. All of this theology and doxology lead to something, and it leads into the application of living it out in our Christian life, which is what the latter half of Ephesians is going to take us into. So for us to say with Paul, to him be glory in the church, it is to recognize the eternal purposes and plans God has for us. 
Paul's prayer for them is to be filled with all the fullness of God, and that is a prayer for us too. And with that prayer, we are to know God's infinite ability for His people and His infinite glory that is to be manifested and praised through His people. So I challenge us today. Do you want your life to be a display of God's power and glory? Is that what you want? What do you want your life to be about? Do you want your life to be a display of God's power and glory? Do you want Lee Creek Baptist Church to be this? A display of God's power and glory. I pray that we would all say yes to that. So let us pray as Paul prayed. Believe as Paul believed. Submit to the Spirit. And serve and worship our Savior with everything that's in us. Let's stand our feet as we close. Have a closing song. Our Father, we bow before you so thankful, Lord, for this text of Scripture. How Paul closes out with another great doxology, an utterance of praise unto you. His prayer for the Ephesians is a convicting one. It's a prayer that your people need today. It's my prayer that you would bring to pass those truths, Lord, in our own hearts and our own lives. That you would make Lee Creek Baptist Church a beacon, a bright light, shining forth the glory of God because of your power at work in us. May we think of this in an individual manner, that we in our individual Christian lives would seek to be all that Christ has made us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.